X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, October the 14th. Today, back in the day, October 14, 1979, the first March on Washington for gay and lesbian rights, a major touchstone for LGBTQ political organizing and an expression of a vibrant, unified community. There were 200,000 people in attendance. Harvey Milk helped plan that event. He'd been assassinated earlier that year, but his death served as motivation for many people to take to the streets and have that march. Organizers issued five demands to Washington. They included passage of a comprehensive gay rights bill, a ban on LGBT discrimination in the federal government, the repeal of all anti-LGBT laws, an end of discrimination against lesbian and gay parents, legal protections for LGBT youth. The goals of the march were unfulfilled then, and many remain unfulfilled. So even though same-sex marriage is legal these days, there's still a long way to go to achieve Milk's dream. And today, back in the day, October 14, 1941, the Umatilla Army Ordnance Depot, a 20,000-acre military reservation straddling the Umatilla Morrow County line, was opened on October 14, 1941. The depot, some people say depot, was built to store and supply munitions to the Army. Between 1962 and 1969, chemical weapons were received and stored in that depot. The district attorney of that county, a guy named R.P. Joe Smith, tried to stop those chemical weapons. It may have hurt his popularity in Umatilla County. It did build him a statewide name, and he came within half a point of winning the race for state attorney general in 1972. And nearly 45 years later, he became the star of News With My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. Back to the Weapons Depot, from 1996 to 2012, under the name Umatilla Chemical Agent Disposal Facility, the depot was the site of the destruction of those weapons. It then became a very obvious environmental problem. And many of those same families who supported the jobs back in 62-69 were concerned about the poison in the 2000s. We'll start with the quick six news headlines and an interview with Jesse Cornett, former staffer with Senator Bernie Sanders, an Oregonian native. X-ray. First up... It's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. People have their voters' pamphlets, and you're going to have your ballots soon, so we're going to start running through some of the elections. First up, we're going to be talking about three races that are really important but might not be as close. Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum is running against a non-lawyer to be Attorney General. Michael Cross is the Republican nominee. He is best known for trying to recall Governor Kate Brown in 2019. He attended community college, went to the Air Force for four years, has a few felony convictions. One was a criminal trespass in 2000 in El Paso Shopping Center while campaigning for candidate Pat Buchanan. He backs the blue, currently works as a commercial truck driver, and is trying to develop an app and launch a startup to make grocery shopping easier. When asked how he would reassure Oregonians how he'd be able to take on the role without a law degree, he said, Look what we have now in the mess we're in. Whether you're a lawyer or not a lawyer, that's immaterial. Where's your heart at? Where's your mind at? Where's your drive at? What do you want to accomplish? Those are things that I have a stellar track record. To be clear, according to the Secretary of State's office, candidates for attorney general only have to be a resident of Oregon. You don't have to have a law degree. Ellen Rosenblum is also running. She's a Democratic nominee. She has a law degree from the University of Oregon. She previously served as a judge in the Oregon Court of Appeals, the Multnomah County District and Circuit Courts, and as an assistant U.S. attorney in Oregon. In 2017, she helped lead the curb police profiling with House Bill 2355. She's worked on hate crimes and public records laws. She's worked to change hate crimes. I shouldn't say she's worked on hate crimes. It sounds like she's been doing some hate crimes. No, she worked on hate crime legislation and on public records laws. She was elected as Oregon's first woman attorney general back in 2012, and no slight attended to Mr. Cross. 
she's on track to be attorney general again. In another race of an incumbent against an upstart, Kurt Schrader is running for re-election to Congress in the 5th District. That includes Salem, etc. And his Republican challenger is Amy Ryan Corser. Schrader in the 2020 primary had maybe his first tough challenge since taking the seat back in 2008. In May, he beat progressive Mark Gamba in the Democratic primary. Schrader is rated one of the most conservative Democrats in Congress. He represents a seat that the Cook Political Report rates as solidly Democratic. Schrader has an enormous fundraising edge against Amy Ryan Corser. He reported $1.4 million raised as the end of June and $2.5 million cash on hand. Schrader also has inherited wealth as the grandson of Jasper Kane, a VP of Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company. Amy Ryan Corser had under $4,000 on hand as of June 30th. Again, no insult to her, but it looks like Kurt Schrader is on Corser to return to Washington, D.C. I know. Forgive the little pun. We deserve a little pun, okay? It's, it's a pandemic, for heck's sakes. And U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley is running for re-election to the U.S. Senate. And his opponent, as we've mentioned before, is Joe Ray Perkins. Among things he's been prioritizing, he's working in the Senate on the For the People Act. That's a big proposal, would change campaign finance rules, require states to form independent commissions to draw district boundaries, and would enact automatic voter registration nationally. Oregon already has that. Shout out to the bus project. Teaser for Jesse Cornett's interview. He was a bus project guy back in the day. Jeff Merkley is the former Speaker of the Oregon House. He first won his Senate seat back in 2008. Here's a fun story. A political consultant named Kevin Looper, currently working with corporate groups to defeat the transportation initiative, was then working with a guy named Mark Wiener, who was friends with a guy named Steve Novick. And Kevin met with Jeff Merkley for the purpose of convincing him not to run against Gordon Smith for the U.S. Senate back in 2008. Before that meeting, Merkley had told his wife that if he had a 10% chance of beating Gordon Smith, he thought he had to run. At the meeting, Merkley asked the consultant how much chance he had, and the consultant, trying to persuade him to stay out of the race, said, maybe 10%. Merkley ran. He's now in the U.S. Senate. Merkley's challenge is Joe Ray Perkins. Some of her views, she questions whether it's constitutional for the federal government to have control of land in Oregon and claims and argues that climate change is not responsible for wildfires. She supports the Second Amendment and expanding and fortifying the U.S.-Mexico border wall. She's most famous for being a big QAnon supporter. On the night of the primary, she posted a video where she held up a sticker with a QAnon slogan on it, Where We Go One, We Go All. She's also posted the hashtag with the initials for that thing multiple times. In a video that her campaign later took down, she also thanked the Anons for their support. QAnon, by the way, is the conspiracy theory and alternate reality game, apparently pushed by a racist pig farmer named Jim Watkins, a huge share of Russian troll sites, and a few of my Utah cousins. And it's the thing the FBI has identified as a rising domestic terror threat. As for the Senate race, 538, a data news site, says Merkley is very likely to win. And the political news site Politico has designated Oregon Senate race as solid Democrat. Anyhow, those are three of the races. We'll be going over more of them. Two people have been charged in Sunday night's protests as mayoral candidates have come together to condemn the violence. Monday afternoon, Mike Schmidt, Multnomah County District Attorney, announced charges against two protesters. Those occurred on the eve of Indigenous Peoples Day. One protester is charged with driving a vehicle to topple a statue of President Theodore Roosevelt. The DA's office has estimated the damage from that toppling to be around $20,000. Another protester was charged with smashing windows of the Historical Society and around PSU. Officers also found a gun near where that protester was arrested. Both Mayor Wheeler and mayoral candidate Sarah Ianarone have denounced the violence of Sunday's Indigenous Peoples Day of Rage. Ianarone condemned, and I'm quoting, all acts of violence and destruction, especially those targeting public art. She went on to say that our systems of government have long ignored problematic symbols, but called the destruction toxic and said it has no place in our city. Wheeler and D.A. Schmidt likewise condemned the destruction. 
Wheeler accused the protesters of co-opting what is otherwise a peaceful opportunity, and Schmidt defended the Historical Society, saying they have put a spotlight on white supremacy. Health authorities reported six new deaths. That gets us past 600 to 605. In a statement, the health authority director, Patrick Allen, said each death is a reminder to the rest of us of the severity and danger of COVID-19. Health authority also reported 321 new cases yesterday, 50 in Washington County, 45 in Multnomah County, 37 in Clackamas County, Lane County, 39, Umatilla, 11. And another COVID news, a new study is showing that Oregonians are wearing their masks, but gathering too often. According to that study, eight in 10 Oregonians are routinely wearing a mask indoors. However, over half of the respondents have also recently gathered outside their homes. 20% have gathered in groups of 10 or more. 7% have recently visited a bar or club. A poll of about 1,000 Oregonians also saw divisions in how concerned people are about COVID-19 and why. Liberal-leaning city-dwelling and Black and Asian Oregonians were the most concerned about COVID. Most are worried about protecting their families and communities more than themselves. A separate poll of 468 Spanish-speaking Oregonians found 70% were very worried. About 16% of respondents said they had attended 11 or more gatherings in the past two weeks. Those respondents leaned more conservative, lived more likely outside the Portland area. Portland Public Schools have unveiled part of their plan to break up K-8 schools. In the coming years, the school board plans to move away from the K-8 model. In order to make that happen, schools need to be restructured, boundaries need to be redrawn. Late last month, they released their first draft proposal for how to do that. Harrison Park is going to be turned back to a middle school. Bridger will be converted to an elementary school. They're considering turning Lent School into a Spanish immersion elementary school. In total, they plan to restructure six schools on the east side, converting them either to middle or elementary schools. That'll leave only two K-8 schools in the area. The goal is to reduce overcrowding in the classrooms. It's been a serious problem before the pandemic sent everyone home. And you can talk to my brother, the teacher, about what it's like to try to have over 35 kids on a Zoom call. As Portland Public Schools continues to refine their plans, they're going to hold two virtual town halls to discuss the restructuring. The first will be October 18th, the second, December 3rd. New charges have been brought against the man accused of adding to the Almeida fire. Last month, Michael Jared Bacala was accused of starting a fire in Phoenix, Oregon. Authorities believe that contributed to the Almeida fire. Bacala faces eight new misdemeanor charges for animal abuse, accounting for the animals killed in the portion of the fire that Bacala allegedly started. The charges specifically accuse him of causing the deaths of sheep, chickens, a canary, and a goldfish, among other animals. The charges follow a letter from PETA last month, which demanded cruelty to animals charges must not be lost in this fire. Last month, he pled not guilty to the charges of arson and reckless endangerment. He's currently being held on over $5 million bail. And a ripple of hope, Portland is planning to give Bike Town memberships to black residents with chronic diseases. The City Transportation Bureau and the Multnomah County Health Department are seeking $200,000 in grant money. It would fund the program for two and a half years. If funded, health officials will be able to prescribe annual Bike Town memberships to black residents with certain chronic conditions, including diabetes and hypertension. Residents would then have a year's worth of access to Portland's rentable e-bikes. Health officials see the proposal as a win-win. Not only would it give black residents greater access to Portland's bike sharing, it would also help treat conditions that are some of the leading causes of death among black Portlanders. And if the grant goes through, Portland hopes to have the program up and running in 2021. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next is former Bernie Sanders body man Jesse Cornett. Jesse talks about his work on the 2020 Sanders presidential campaign with Jefferson Smith. He also shares some great stories about the senator and his thoughts on local issues here in Portland. Here are Jesse Cornett and Jefferson Smith. Back in 2002, 
A young man called together a meeting, figuring out how young people might engage in the coming election, and he invited a bunch of people. One of the people he invited was me, and that was the first meeting of any size that I pitched something that I'd been pitching one-on-one for, I don't know, some number of weeks prior. And the person who called, and but for that meeting that he called the Rogue Brewery, which is now closing, but for that meeting, I suspect, in fact, I am quite confident, that the bus project never would have happened. And what is now, what is now the Alliance for Youth, uh, Alliance for Youth Action nationally, never would have happened. And Oregon Voice, which spawned out of out of the bus in 2008, never would have happened. And on the line is the person who called that meeting at the Rogue Brewery, Jesse Cornett. Jesse, how you doing, man? Good morning. That's quite the introduction. It's good to hear your voice. It's been way too long. Where are you right now? I am a few blocks away from the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. Are you protesting? Are you filing papers? Are you just walking by? What's happening in D.C.? So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm here in D.C. right now on my own time, on my own dime. I took a few weeks off to, uh, to come out here and support the work of Center for Popular Democracy and a few other progressive groups uh, that are doing anything and everything possible to push back on the Supreme Court appointment that the Senate is trying to ram through. And uh, my morning started off today. Uh, painfully early. I think I'm in a, uh, just about an hour seven of my day. We were up nice and early to uh, to stand on a piece of private property very close to Lindsey Graham's house to make sure that he knew that we were unhappy about this and that he should take a damn COVID test. And uh, and we've been at the Supreme Court ever since. So what have you, when you're not there, what have you been doing? What have you been doing? Since, I know during the Bernie, during the primary, during the Democratic presidential primary, uh, you were working with the Bernie Sanders campaign, and other people knew that because they would see pictures of you on social media and, heck, in national media and see you on TV. Uh, you were with the center. One of the things we'll talk about, you were with them on the uh, day he had his heart attack. But that, since- that, was my, that was my first two hours on the job. Oh, we got, I shouldn't have, well, yeah, we've got, we're going to have to talk about that. <laughs> but what have you been doing since the primary? Let's get back to that. But what have you been doing since the primary? Sure. Primary ended. I stayed in Vermont until June, about June 15th, continuing to work for uh, the campaign and the senator. Uh, and uh, I produced all the live streams that he did. Um, and uh, uh, that was something very different than anything I've ever done before and something that I knew nothing about. And uh, based on an experience I had this past week, I still know nearly not enough about. Um, after about June 15th, I came back to Portland. Uh, it was time for a break, uh, laid back. You've known me long enough to know that uh, I get to points in my life where uh, I have to pull away from politics because it, it's, it, it can be draining. And uh, I'd take a couple of months off of doing anything political this summer and uh, frankly didn't think I was going to reengage uh, in this race much uh, and really was woken up by Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and realized that uh, sitting around moping, and uh, I immediately did. I, I, I played a very background role helping uh, organized a small vigil in Portland that weekend and uh, um, got on the phone on Monday and started calling folks and figuring out where the right place for me to be uh, for the duration was. And it turns out it's here. Jesse, also for people who follow that site or and also for the many of you who followed that site, was one of the early movers of Blue Oregon, the, uh, the, the Democratic-leaning uh, blog that was the big, maybe the biggest political blog in Oregon during the heyday of blogs. Uh, what have you, so let's talk about within, within the first two hours of your first day, uh, Bernie had a heart attack. First, before we even get into that, uh, how did you get that gig? How did that even come up? 
Like, how'd you, how'd you decide this is what I want to do? And how'd they say, yeah, this is what we, we want you. And then how'd that arrange to say, yeah, you're going to be the driver. Well, in September of 2020, so I started in, uh, so I did advance, uh, which is basically coordinating events uh, for Bernie in 2016. And uh, I had just a range of tremendous experiences. And I realized that they were all enhanced when he was actually part of the experience. Uh, but I got to do some tremendous things. Uh, I stood on a ladder uh, with him and stared into the Homestead Detention Center, where our government is detaining little children. Um, kind of a moving experience for me. I uh, uh, sat in the living room of an older African-American couple in Denmark, South Carolina, uh, and watched them pour water out of their sink. Uh, that was as brown as iced tea. Uh, I, uh, I had all these experiences, and uh, I just wanted to do more and more and more. I took a vacation uh, in uh, July uh, of 2019. It was planned before I started with the campaign. And uh, uh, from Prague, I remember sending an email uh, to my bosses saying, hey, you guys are paying me great, but I think you're underutilizing me. Um, and I'm happy to keep doing what I'm doing, but if there's a greater role, please let me know. What I've been doing at that point is managing press at events for the campaign. Um, I never again managed press uh, at an event for the campaign. I managed the overall events uh, as soon as I landed back. Actually, that was a really a fun story, too. The, the crazy things that you do in advanced world. I was flying back from Europe, and I got a message when I landed for my transfer in Philadelphia. Thank goodness I didn't have any plant, any uh, any check bags. Hey, we're gonna. this was a Saturday at 4. Hey, we might have something there on Monday. Stay in Philly. So I did. And uh, Monday at 1, we had a, a downtown street shut off and about 5,000 people. That's the kind of the pace of things. And uh, I just wanted more and more and more. In September, the incumbent in the job uh, um, left the campaign rather abruptly, and they needed to um, have somebody fill in. I called my bosses immediately, and I said, hey, I don't know if that's the right fit for me, but if you need somebody to fill in, um, I'd be game to do it. They said, okay. The next morning I woke up and said, that was stupid. And I called John michelle my boss, back. And I said, hey, that was really stupid. I want to do that job. And he said, well, it's too bad. You should have said that yesterday. We're giving blank a try at it. And uh, if it doesn't work out, maybe we'll give you a try. And uh, really, unfortunately for the person that was trying it, it didn't work out, fortunately for me. And uh, so on October 1st, I uh, flew, to, uh, flew to Vegas to, uh, to meet Bernie and the traveling party that I was joining, uh, they landed at 5.49 p.m. Uh, we went to an event. Uh, it was clear he didn't feel well. He asked for a chair um, to sit down when he was taking questions. Um, curiously, this was a room of 150 people, and our finance director swears 88 of them were medical doctors. Um, so it was a very medical-heavy event. Um, he didn't feel well. He sat down. Um, we didn't know what was going on. He got done. We left abruptly. He got in the car, was complaining about not feeling well. And uh, um, this is actually a part of the story I've never said out loud before, uh, which is, I, this is my first day. I don't know what my job is. I do know it's to drive uh, amongst, you know, I, when anyone asked what I do, I said I was his, his driver, his personal assistant, and his fake bodyguard. Um, I didn't know how bad the situation was in the moment. His deputy campaign manager was in the back trying to find a doctor that can meet us because we didn't want to go to the hospital. And then he, uh, he, he motioned that his left arm hurt, you know, raised and dropped his arm a couple times. And I asked him, Senator, what's happening? 
And he said, my, my arm hurts. Um, I know very little about medicine, but I do know your left arm hurting is a telltale sign of a heart attack. Yeah, that's, anybody that watches point, TV knows that one. That's like that's my one medical thing, too. <laughs> I don't even watch TV anymore, and I know that. I know that and, like, tonsils. Uh, so, uh, so I said, hey, let's, uh, at that point, um, Ari, the deputy campaign manager, had been encouraging us to go to urgent care. Um, he did not want to. The senator did not want to. At that point, when he did that with his arm, I said, Senator, we should go to the hospital. And uh, that's all I remember saying. And uh, Ari backed me up, and he relented. And by 8 o'clock, we were at urgent care. And, uh, you know, two hours later, he was at a, a different facility getting stamps uh, implanted. I wanna... And I sat there, sat there scared as hell, holding his wedding ring on my pinky finger, texting friends nervously, thinking that I would be texting them within 24 hours looking for a job. Um, because we thought the campaign was over. I did, at least. Uh, you're a 78-year-old running for president of the United States. You don't have a heart attack and survive that. So I want to um, talk, talk about that dynamic. But first, I want to say, so this happens two, after, two hours after you start the job. Did you blame yourself? My driving is not that bad. I mean, it's questionable. It wasn't, it wasn't a stressor. You don't think that, that mattered. <laughs> and Bernie saw... He, it, was, it was really interesting to me. So after... And I do think it speaks, and this is a, this is not a knock on Bernie, but it is a knock on uh, our misogynist culture in this respect, not having anything to do with him, that after Hillary Clinton had the flu, okay, just standard flu, and wobbled ever so slightly uh, uh, when she was getting into a car, that ended up being national news and impacted her somewhat in the election. After Bernie Sanders, uh, after Bernie Sanders' heart attack, I, you know, I thought like you, okay, well, this is... You know, it's probably not going to end with this guy being the Democratic nominee. Probably is not going to end up him continuing his campaign. There was then a surge of support. He was flagging. I think he was third at the time, as I recall, to Elizabeth Warren and to Joe Biden. And as I recall, there was a pretty significant surge in Bernie Sanders' support. So many Sanders supporters who've been inspired by him, not only in this election, but in four years ago and even throughout his life, came and expressed that support. That was how I saw the dynamic. How did you see it? So I thought like this, uh, by 10, 11 a.m. that morning, West Coast time, Sanjay Gupta was on CNN saying, and let me just stop really quickly. I do think Hillary was held to an extremely unfair standard, and I agree with you on that. Um, that stumble should never have been that big of a story. Uh, our president has stumbled like that, and it's just a little blip. Um, so there's an absolute unfair standard. Um, Sanjay Gupta gets on CNN, and he says... No big deal. Nothing to see here. Millions of people have this procedure, not even a surgery, this procedure every year in America. He'll be on his feet in a week at the most. And uh, that's what, like, the news cycle carried. Like, Interesting. No big deal. Nothing to see here. Um, he recovered at the hospital and in Las Vegas, and he flew home. And at that point, um, the connection had already been made with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, and uh, uh, that just, you know, her support came out in the aftermath of that, and uh, and other folks jumped on, and it really restarted the campaign. The Queensbridge Park rally was just this incredible reboot to a campaign that I don't think anyone would disagree with you was toward its low point uh, on September 30th of 2019, and uh, it just, uh, or October 1st, rather, it just, you know, that did turn it around for sure. 
And when you're when you're there in the car with them, and you continue to be the driver after the heart attack, presumably, yes. Yes, I and, drove. So basically, the the way that I worked with the senator was if he was outside of his home or a hotel room between October first and May fifteenth, I was with him. So how yeah. do you use that time? People have probably watched Veep. Does that mean you're handing him hand lotion? Like, what are you using? What, 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 are, what are the most important tools for you during this time? How do, you, how do you while away those hours, or what are some of the most interesting parts of it? Well, hand sanitizer, um, even before COVID, uh, was, uh, was something that I always had typically in, in whatever vehicle we were driving, just so he could grab it and use it. Sometimes I would hand it to him if, if I didn't see him uh, going for it. Um, you're uh you're when you're driving you're just driving obviously um when you're at events and when you're driving what's he doing getting ready prepping a speech doing call time what's he doing while you're driving he's all the above reading prepping making phone calls um reminding me that i should stop more at yellow lights things like that (laughs) Um, (laughs) backseat driving i i did actually run a red light uh intentionally I stopped. I waited. There was nobody coming to turn into the urgent care. And uh, there was a point later he said, thank you so much for getting me there so quickly. You shouldn't make a habit of running red lights, though. Did you? Um, did, <laughs> did he sit in the back or, pa- or, or, or passenger seat? Front passenger seat. Front passenger Always. seat. Always. Yeah, with very, with very little uh, uh, exception. We did this great tour of Detroit um, with uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who is... I would go to the ends of earth for her. She's so wonderful. Um, but they did a tour of Detroit. And uh, so he sat in the back seat with her so they could talk uh, and she could do the show and tell. But other than that, in very rare circumstances, he was right in the front. Rashid Tlaib, uh, you talk about they, they sat back together. We're talking, by the way, right now to Jesse Cornett, who, among other things, was the body man. You said fake bodyguard. He was sort of a big guy with Bernie Sanders that you'd see on TV and in print images uh, during the primary campaign. What's something that you saw? What's a what, what is a perspective that you got about Senator Sanders that you don't think you would have had had you not been that up close? Well, there was one thing that I saw him do over and over again that unless you were with him an awful lot, you would never notice, which is he would stand in a, like after he would speak or when we were out in public, when he was shaking hands, meeting voters, um, he would at times walk past 10, 12, 50 able-bodied people because he sees somebody on the other side of the room in a wheelchair unable to get to him looking excited. Um, I love seeing that it was, it was, uh, you know, it would happen not at every event, but it was, it was not infrequent. And how long do you do it when the, when the campaign starts winding down, right? Talk to us about the sort of not, not after the nomination was cinched, but when, but when it was starting to look that way, or at least not after it was announced, but as it started to look like that, when did you realize, okay, this is not going to end with Bernie Sanders getting the nomination. And then, because I'm interested in how the campaign was, how, how campaign staff members were talking amongst themselves during that time. The path was very hard to see after Super Tuesday, knowing how bad COVID was going to be. Yeah. So that was the point where it, it started looking 
grim, um, which was too bad because three weeks before it looked very unlikely that he wouldn't be the nominee. Um, it, 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 it just everything switched um, at an amazing pace. I've been a follower of politics for 20 years. I've worked a lot of those years in it. Um, I, I cannot begin to understand uh, yet explain, much less explain what happened to change the race so dramatically, so quickly. Um, it just, it, it escapes me. So you're still puzzled by it. You, you, you have a favorite one or two hypotheses or are you still just mostly th- are dazzled by and, and remark at the odd physics of politics? I have only conspiracy theories, which I won't share on your show. Okay. <laughs> so, that's it. So, and when you, what were the discussions like within the, I mean, to the extent you're not sharing, you know, secret information or whatever, but within the Sanders campaign, I remember the 2016, I attended the 2016 uh, Democratic uh, nominating convention and the, uh, and there was a large uh, Sanders supporting contingent who was really disruptive in that, uh, in that convention. And that included in the Oregon delegation, a pretty big crew of Sanders delegates in the Oregon delegation. And I even interviewed and talked to uh, one of the leaders of that delegation who had previously been a Nader supporter. And uh, and and the was not sort of like it was not a big D Democrat most of the time. Right. It was not somebody who was wearing red, white and blue hats at conventions uh, previous years or probably in future years. Uh, it did seem pretty quickly that Bernie Sanders moved to make clear and Bernie Sanders supporters moved to make pretty clear that this was not a Jill Stein, you know, opportunity, that this was an opportunity to uh, to beat Donald Trump. Was that your impression within the campaign? What drove that? Was that mostly just a Trump thing? Was it a change of personnel within the Bernie Sanders campaign or was it basically the same energy in 2016? And I'm just focusing on different elements of what was not a monotheistic energy. I believe that even though I know way more about the 2020 campaign than I did the 2016 campaign, I think the, the sort of the, the, the ethic that was that you saw in 2020 uh, also from the campaign applied in 2016. Uh, we just, I think, had a better machine uh, in 2020 to be able to convey our wishes to would-be delegates and supporters um, that 2016, it just, um, I, I believe 2016, it's fair to say that in 2016, any campaign, uh, as you know, you're, how is the adage, you're putting the wings on as the plane's on the runway. Uh, you're, you're really making it up as you go. And uh, sure, you have some smart people around. Uh, and I think that was the case in 2016, 2015, 2016. Um, I mean, if you look the Moda Center, a sold-out Moda Center in August of 2015 uh, to see a political candidate speak that many months before our primary, that many months before a general election. Like, the response to him getting in the race was so fast and so rapid. Um, I don't know what personality or what brain you would have to have to know how to manage that with as little time as they had to build that machine. What are you focused on now? You're in Washington, D.C. as we speak. You're right across the Supreme Court building. Say hello. And what are you, how do you imagine spending your next couple of weeks? And when do you plan, imagine coming home? So my, my focus is, uh, is 
by Coastal right now. Um, it, it would be hard to deny that my primary focus is the Supreme Court appointment. Uh, I'm here in D.C. Uh, for that. You see any uh, chance of that? What do you think's the node to uh, to change that? Right now, it feels like it's a it's a 51 it's a 51 48 or 51 uh, 51 49 vote. And even if Mark Kelly wins, it's a 50 50 plus Pence vote. Uh, what do you think might change that dynamic? I, yeah, and uh, Kelly's not going to get seated until, what, November 30th at the earliest? Yeah. Um, so um, I believe there will be a vote before then. Um, if, I mean, if we cannot stop it. Uh, what we're doing is a massive, radical, uphill battle. Yeah. Uh, I'm a foot soldier in a, a much larger army, a, a massive army, uh, trying to push back against this. Um, I don't know. Uh, that will succeed in stopping it, but I do know that we've got to throw every ounce of our energy into it. And and just to amplify that a little bit, there is a risk that if we do sort of strategy first and sort of predictions first, that those become self-defeating prophecies. If you don't announce the clarion call, no one can ever come to it. You never have a chance, and all you end up doing is creating a culture of learned helplessness, and you don't try because you don't think you succeed, and then ultimately you never are able to succeed. So there is strategic wisdom as well as moral uh, courage required. Jesse Cornett, man, it is so great to hear your voice. I'm so glad we got to spend this time. I hope we have got a chance time, to do it got again. Time for two quick. Got oh time. yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go oh, ahead. Okay, so so number one, you knew the younger Jesse. I was the guy that sat down with SEIU when they were trying to organize Providence, uh, and had met with the Secretary of State and the CEO of Providence, and went back to SEIU. And in my mind, there's no way you're ever going to organize this hospital. Like they're dead set against it. It's a lost cause don't bother. That was the attitude younger Jesse had. I'm really glad I got rid of it. This is such a battle. We've got to fight it. Number two, you were talking about local politics before I uh, hopped on. I could hear you, but I couldn't hear Pop. Yeah. Pop. Um, the, uh, I just wanted to say two things I, uh, uh, that I'm really focused on back home. Number one, the mayor's race. Um, I, uh, I don't have a good sense of uh, you know, who's going who's gonna to win or not, but it seems like looking at the polling, the only polling that I've seen um, a lot of undecideds, and it sort of feels like 2016, where the undecideds broke heavily toward Trump. I feel like that's going to happen for Sarah in this race, and I really hope that it does, just because I don't think that the mayor warrants a uh, uh, a second term. So I've not done a lot of work for her. I have donated, and and I'm and very supportive. Uh, number number two, um, uh, have you know have done you know probably 20 volunteer hours with the uh, the police accountability campaign uh, as somebody that has pretty close interface uh, with police brutality in Portland. Uh, that is, uh, that's uh, next to the Supreme Court, in my mind, the most important thing. Um, I'm focused on Supreme Court Biden. That are the big three things for me. With the uh, Police Accountability Act, I was proud they did a, a live stream last night that I uh, helped uh, organize as a volunteer, helped promote a bit. Um, at last count, about 14,000 viewers around the country. Um, Sean King. Uh, yeah, the Sean King thing happened on. last night. That's right. Yeah, because I yeah. I was getting I'm on the text thread. I'm on the text thread about uh, with the with the campaign. And it was not part of the plan at all. Yeah. Um, but uh, Sean also pledged a twenty thousand dollar contribution during the live stream. Yeah. Um, so um, for having done very little for that campaign, uh, I'm really hopeful and feel good about the little I have done. Jesse Cornett, thank you so much for being with us, man. Have a great one. Thanks so much. Let's do it again. Thanks to Jesse for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. 
Thanks for subscribing and giving a review of how many stars? All of the stars. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-ray, 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 X-ray.